Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds, the show that takes you over the horizon and beyond borders to bring you the global thinkers, innovators, and troublemakers whose ideas challenge the world as we know it. I'm in Oslo, Norway today uh, with uh, Shell Nordstrom, who is a uh, professor at uh, the, it's the Stockholm School of Economics. That's right. Yes. He's also a wonderful speaker and an author. Uh, he's written some books uh, that many of you would know, of course, Funky Business, and I have his latest book, which is in a hot pink uh, called Urban Express. It's like Karim Rashid designed this. <laughs> it's his favorite color, I'm sure. But you know, uh, um, shall we actually, you remember we met, I think almost seven or eight years ago, Something originally like uh, speaking at Gultagen in, uh, in Oslo. That's right. And Gultagen is actually on today. It is, strangely enough. Strangely enough, here in a building right next to us. I remember that event. It was like two or 3,000 people. Yes, it's huge. And you were wearing um, sort of Doc Martin military boots and that's shorts. Right. Yes, that's right. <laughs> so it was, it was terrific. And of course, I, I, I heard you today, but it was all in uh, Scandinavian, so it, it made very little sense. Yes, the, the decision was taken to um, <laughs> do the presentation in Scandinavian, since it's an all Scandinavian audience. And there's only one Australian. Yes. Uh, so this is my opportunity to pick your brain. So, you know, let's, let's talk a little bit about one of the key themes in, in this recent book of yours, um, mm -hmm. The Urban Express, which is you know, in a way, your take on globalization. Mm -hmm. um, there's been this, you know, in the last couple of years since you've written this book, it seems that the blowtorch has been applied to this idea of living in a global world. Mm -hmm. um, what, what is your take of why, you know, we are seeing such importance of thinking more globally now? You know, there are a couple of things going on in parallel to each other here. Number one is this today, I would say, rather well-documented urbanization that is going on, well, in Australia, Africa, Asia at large, wherever you go today, you see your concentration to the cities. Hmm. And to the best of our knowledge today, this means that we are in the process of transforming this planet from um, 220 countries-ish today um, to a state where our planet is basically 600 cities right and those 600 cities will account for 80 to 85 percent of the world population and even more of the world I mean certainly GDP. when you see some of these cities in China and I'm not just talking about the obvious ones like Shanghai and Beijing I mean they are more populous and more significant than countries of, of course <laughs> uh, we already have places like Chongqing hmm. with uh, 25 million people we have the which case, is bigger than Australia <laughs> which is bigger than Australia and two times the size of uh, Holland or something like that we have the case of of course Tokyo uh, the larger Tokyo area today 37 million people go up and uh, will be above 50 55 million people 20 25 years from now and at that time, Japan will probably, Japan as a whole, will probably be below uh, 100 million people, which means that you will have more than 50% of the population in one city. 
And I think there's a lot of credence, therefore, that when you say that mayors will be as important as presidents. Yes, I mean, they will. Uh, strangely enough, there have been a number of mayors recently who are now presidents. Um, I think Putin was originally a mayor of his, uh, he was. his community. And, yes. uh, and I suppose there are a number of other mayors who've got... Um, I think Erdogan was also a, a, a mayor. Yes, what we've seen is uh, that mayors play a more significant role in the political landscape for obvious reasons. I mean, just look at a place like London, for example. London today accounts for somewhere between 25 and 30 percent of the UK GDP. It's, of course, difficult to define the GDP of a city. But let's say a quarter of the, the British economy it's actually London, that little corner. There are some arguments in favour of cities. I mean, I, I was always interested in this. Uh, have you seen this, this, this work around urban scaling? Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think it was uh, uh, Battencourt who was saying that cities are like urban reactors. I mean, the density and growth and size of them, perversely, they, they actually get more productive the bigger and denser they get. Yes, they do. And um, the urbanists, they have a, a couple of explanations. If you ask an economist or if you ask me, I would say it's probably the exchange of tacit knowledge that today is critical. Um, places this, like is, this is the, the secret knowledge that we have inside us, but we often can't articulate. We cannot articulate it because uh, we human beings know more than we can say, most of us. Right. Language is a limitation for many of us, and to explain, if you ask a Chinese person, <laughs> a master of acupuncture, how it works, he or she can probably not explain that, because it's a type of knowledge that is experience-based. You can describe certain dimensions of it, but it is a skill at the end of the day, which that you have to learn from a master. So it travels through time, but you cannot use technology really no. You have, you need proximity here, physical proximity. In a way, it's a bit like the knowledge that London taxi drivers famously have. Yes, or the knowledge that they share in Silicon Valley today, because Silicon Valley is, is a paradox. Hmm. Here you have this tiny place in California that develop all the technology that enables us to free ourselves from geography. And they sit together and develop it, <laughs> which is kind of weird yes. and, a, and, a, and a paradox. And probably Silicon Valley, similarly to Hollywood, cluster together, people cluster together because they have to. They share preliminary thoughts, half-baked ideas, things that they have not yet articulated. They are able maybe to think them or parts of it, which means you need proximity to share that with another human being. But we also have this maybe upper level, upper, upper level constraint on the number of people that we can manage in our mind. I mean, people, I think anthropologists, I think it was Dunbar used to say this was 150 people. Ish. Like, ish, you know. And maybe it's augmented with technology, but, you know, beyond that, we lose the sense of a village or the, mm -hmm. the be able to contextualize a, a community. Yes, and we can't keep track of them, which means that our greatest, uh, one of our greatest inventions, if we look at human history, is when we invented story making. Um, stories that are big, the story of Jesus, for example, yeah. which means that people that have never met can collaborate around this idea. Right. 
So, so you're saying stories were a way of uh, bridging the fact that we may not be able to have a one-on-one -on -one relationship with everybody. Exactly. IBM is a story. IKEA is a story. America is a story. And America is a story. America is an idea. And they keep repeating that. Yeah. You know, this is America and the American dream. You keep repeating that, repeating that in order to keep that flock together. Yes, I mean, this, this, is, this is, you know, one of the areas where um, the idea of the city also comes in conflict with the rural community. Yes. Um, I mean, when you look at some of the popular swing away from globalization, you know, because of Brexit, it really falls down on geography. Yes, it does. Yeah, I mean, the cities are very pro and open world and, and the, the, the farms are not. And I saw one study that describes as the difference between people who define themselves as anywhere versus somewhere. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> the, the anywhere people see opportunity and connections and openness. The somewhere people, not so much. Well, if we look at uh, France, um, that have an election in a, a couple of days here in Europe, um, the polls today tells us that Marine Le Pen, the right-wing nationalist candidate, well, her voters is primarily in the countryside. Hmm. Um, somewhat lower education than the other candidate, and then it's a long list of factors, but they all point in one and the same direction. Marine Le Pen is the countryside's candidate. Right. Irrespective of traditional definitions of right or left. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, probably, we don't know yet, but probably 30 years of globalization, if we take uh, Deng Xiaoping's opening of China 1983, hmm. when, when he opened the door to the West, that's his own expression, and later the implosion of the USSR 1991, when another 700 million people came out and became full members of the world economy because this was like a, a world of its own, hmm. of course, it was. It was not a market economy. And then the modern version of globalization started, basically. And that has lifted so many people out of poverty to something that at least gives them a decent opportunity to have a, 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 some kind of quality life. Do you see that as a zero-sum game? I mean, have their gains been at the expense, as many of the populist voters believe in the Western world, at their middle-class incomes? Well, I've spent 35 years trying to explain this to uh, socialists and communists in my own country, Sweden, that <laughs> economy and, and, and business is not a zero-sum game. That is the whole idea with business, that it is not a zero-sum game. Right. There is no pie there um, that has a given size. And this is kind of difficult to explain to people that business is not a zero-sum game. It's actually a plus-sum game. It's not counterintuitive because you, you think there's a pot of money, right? But there is no pot of money because it all boils down to innovation. If you are able to create something that the world have not seen before, you create something out of nothing. That's mm -hmm. called innovation the world before IKEA and after IKEA. Before IKEA existed, we didn't ask for any products from IKEA because it didn't exist, no. obviously. And in fact, if you sort of abstract that, the world before the mass production of furniture was about craftsmen who could only make very small scale. So 
And it was very expensive. Very expensive. Very, very expensive, which means that young people could not afford to furnish their first apartment. Yes. And it's sort of ironic that someone like Charles Eames, who makes a, you know, now a very expensive uh, chair, that chair was actually designed originally to be the IKEA of its time, like a cheap, easy to manufacture, mass-produced chair yes. at that time. Uh, what I think IKEA's great claim to fame is, of course, that they understood the power of distribution, logistics, and packaging hmm. already in the 60s, hmm. flat packages. Today, I would say it's industry standard. You go to any furniture store in any part of the world and, and uh, the package will be flat when it arrives in your home. So do you believe, I guess, assuming that there's always going to be this tension between the countryside and the city, um, and cities will continue to be these strange attractors of talent and opportunity. Um, will the kind of the, the, the future of Brexit actually be like cities like London devolving essentially to become their own power centers politically? I wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised if we see a rebirth of the city-state. Right. Here in Europe we like have... Flor the, like in the Florence or Athens concept. Exactly. If we go back <clears throat> four or five, six hundred years in time here in Europe, we had city-states and we had a lot of them and a lot of war and a lot of war because this was a very fragmented place yes with tribes and communities and regional powerhouses fighting each other the nation-state is a quite young concept relatively speaking so I, I wouldn't be surprised at all at all if we see cities like Paris London Stockholm for that matter in Sweden claiming political power for the simple reason that they account for, in some cases, 40-50% of the... Ruled by mere warlords. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Probably not warlords, because going to war uh, in our time makes no sense, really, because economic development has very little to do with square meters. So even if you occupy some square meters, it doesn't add any further value, actually. Which takes away the economic value of conquest. Yes which takes away the reason for doing it, uh, because it's cumbersome, it costs a lot of money to go to war, that is. Right. Um, let's talk a little bit about, you know, one of the other parts of, uh, of your current book and, and ideas, which is around the other thing, aside from the rise of cities, we'll see is a world that's increasingly shaped by women. Yes, yes. So you don't, you don't buy the Handmaid's Tale <laughs> <laughs> version of the future, presumably. No, well, here, uh, firstly, women are roughly 50% of the world population. Number two, uh, in most countries, most religions, most cultures, women have been second-class or third-class citizens for um, a number of reasons, historical primarily. Hmm. And what we see around the world today is basically that women are coming out, claiming power, freedom, uh, right to express themselves. We are in Scandinavia, Oslo today. This is a place where more than 50% of the Norwegian government is, is women, the ministers. Yes. The parliament is probably more than 50%. You see the same thing in Sweden. However, having said that, if we look at this from a more structural point of view, number one, we can see that women move to the cities before the men. That's a worldwide global phenomenon women move before the men to the urban areas. We don't know why, but we can see it uh, when we look at the numbers, that is the case. Which means that in a number of cities there are actually more women than men. 
slightly more, two, mm. three, four, five percent more. Um, in some more extreme cases like Almaty or Astana in Kazakhstan, it's 60 percent women and 40 percent men. Uh, but that depends on the local circumstances because it's an oil and gas driven country, uh, natural resources, which means that the men are out in the wilderness <laughs> drilling uh, for oil. Um, number two, um, this is an observation that we made here in Scandinavia 15, 20 years ago. Um, women are willing to invest a lot of time and resources in education. Today, the numbers here in Scandinavia is staggering. About 70% of the university students are female. 70%? 7-0. That's the average. So if you go to, you know, the, the, medical, um, to the uh, medical university here in Oslo, you will find probably more than 70% female students. Now, interestingly enough, um, we have numbers coming in from around the world. You find the same phenomenon in Istanbul, Turkey. Hmm. Uh, you find the same phenomenon in Spain or in Morocco, particularly in the urban areas. Women study, men don't. And this means a shift, of course, gradually in power. When, uh, when there is a lack, basically, of educated men, and that is a situation that we are confronted with here now in the Nordics, in a number of industries. There, there are no men to recruit for the simple reason that they don't have a degree, but women have, <laughs> interestingly enough. And then comes the question why, and again I have to be honest and tell you we don't know why, we can just see that it's happening, uh, what the rationale is, I don't know, no one knows. One of the, the kind of consequences of all these big shifts uh, in, in gender and in where we live and how we work is uh, some changing ideas around innovation, or what you call uh, innovism. Mm -hmm. Innovism. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Well, um, it's called capitalism sometimes, and sometimes a market economy. And actually this is a concept that was developed by the system's enemies. Um, they called it capitalism because you accumulated capital and... There it was a pejorative. Yes, yes, it was from the very beginning. And then it became, today we call it capitalism. But capitalism has very little to do with capital hmm. because the ultimate driver of a market economy is the human imagination. And the fact that every now and then we come up with an idea that the world haven't seen before internet, the world before and after internet. It, it's two different worlds. It, it isn't just a question of the number of hours worked per day. No. And, and you, you know, you wouldn't be able to explain 1955 to, to another human being that, you know, one day there will be the system that connects all the people and the knowledge will be collective. You know, you would have been sent to an asylum probably <laughs> if you had uh, been uh, trying to convince someone that that's the direction we are moving in. This is the, the hard core of the capitalist or the market economy uh, system. Hmm. That we every now and then innovate. And when we do that, mobile phones, it's, it turns the table completely. The world before and after mobile phones. So I think it's, it's not controversial that there are certain 
breakthrough ideas that put us on a new curve. Yes. Um, but from a day-to-day perspective, the the way we allocate resources, the way we value time, um, is it still fair to call this capitalism? You know, or is it a, some other dy- dynamic going on that governs where money goes and, and, and how things are valued? I think it's that's why I came up uh, and, and a colleague of mine in the US, um, Professor McCluskey, with the concept of innovism, that this is not capitalism, this is not market economy, it's, it's a case of innovism. And you can clearly see that today in a number of industries that they are driven by innovation, not by capital, right. not by politics, but by innovation. In terms of novel ideas? Yes. Like, just look at Tesla, Yes. the automotive industry that started the transformation process of the global automotive industry, which is, I mean, that's a big Well, beyond industry. that, it's, an en- it's actually an energy business. It is. I mean, of which the car is one small piece of the ecosystem. And beyond that, it will change the whole, the whole concept of the city if we have self-driving cars, which we will have. Yeah. But if you, if you kind of look at the way most 20th century companies are structured, um, not only are they, in a sense, paying people by the hour, they're paying people to follow processes, mm-hmm. industrial mm-hmm. era processes. So yes. you actually, in, to, to the extent you probably discourage people having ideas, <laughs> uh, in, in that they, if they don't conform to policies or procedures or workflows, they're outside the bands of what should be compensated and measured. But I think we have to go back to why we have companies and why we create, created the limited company. The limited company was created in order to reduce the personal risk of the creator of the company. Right. So that was number one. Number two, we created the limited company primarily for exploiting an idea, selling something, importing something, exporting something. You exploit an idea that you have. So a limited company per definition is an exploitation machinery. And all the systems, all the procedures are there in order to systematically exploit an idea. That's the good news. The bad news is that an exploitation machine, per definition, is not very good at creation. Yeah. Because it's not optimized for creation. It's optimized for exploitation. Like the East India Company. Exactly. (laughs) And, and Siemens or General Motors or any of the big multinationals is in that sense a modern East India company. Mm. It's an exploitation machinery. However, what we see today is because of technological development, we have turned the tables now to such an extent that a company today need to do exploitation, of course, but at least 50% of the resources probably have to go into some kind of creation just yes. to keep up with yes. the development. Then you are not in the forefront. You just keep up. Especially if you could start to automate a lot of the processes of the company, and even the contractual relationships with smart contracts, you, you, you could actually free people up from administration towards innovation. Yes, and that is probably what we will do. Hmm. We're only in the beginning of this process. We have just understood that this is a world driven primarily by creation, not exploitation. 
Exploitation was the name of the game for 150 years, beginning yeah. in the 1850s and onwards, when we industrialized a number of countries out there in the world. So I guess looking forward, um, what are the, how do you think the globalization and the, the multinational firm and the corporation is going to survive this new wave of populism and this Strangely enough, even though when the world economy actually does seem to be doing better and people being pulled out of, of poverty, do you think that we're going to blow our chances, essentially? <laughs> Globalization, well, we have been globalizing basically since 1945, at least in its more modern form. Uh, globalization started after the Second World War, 1945. And then we've been on that trajectory or track for 60, 70 years. Right. Not, not just more open markets, but more institutions and organizations span countries. Everything. Everything from the World Trade Organization to the United Nations. Or from to Bretton Woods. Yeah. Bretton Woods to um, international financial markets and what have you. We have been globalizing. Um, much of that globalization has been driven by pure arbitrage. That basically means that you can manufacture textiles in China cheaper than in Europe and therefore you move manufacturing to China. You have a subsidiary there or you have a buying office in Hong Kong and then, then you place orders with, with uh, these factories in China. And the, the rise of these comes like Lee and Fung, you know, like the, the great sourcing businesses. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, we've also seen companies like Kentucky Fried and McDonald's being rolled out. They don't source in Russia or in China but they see Russia and China as, as huge markets. So they rolled in immediately after the door was open three years later, Kentucky Fried was right there in the middle at Tiananmen Square in Beijing yeah. with 33,000 square meters. It was huge, the first one they opened <laughs> in, in Beijing. Um, McDonald's rolled into Moscow immediately after the Soviet Union fell, McDonald's was there. To cut a long story short, it's 2017 now. It started 2007. For the first time, foreign direct investment flattened out. And now, foreign direct investments are in decline. Uh, they fell probably somewhere between 15 and 20% last year, 2016. We have also seen in a number of industries that multinational companies are rolled up not rolled out, rolled up. Mm -hmm. So Kentucky Fried has left China, sold out. McDonald's is out of Russia. And in The Economist did a study recently uh, where they were looking at the profitability in eight out of 10 industrial sectors, local and regional firms have a higher profitability than international firms. Why? There are probably a number of reasons. Number, number one, the possibilities to do arbitrage are not there. For the simple reason that, that the middle class of China require, they, they want higher wages basically today, yes. uh, if you look at India and China. So the arbitrage opportunities are not there. Taxation. 9-11 basically made the world a transparent place. Why? Because the Americans said either you are with us or against us. So you report all the accounts, you report who's behind the accounts, which means there are no tax havens. Hmm. 
which means that the, the community of multinational firms can't do that magic with the taxes. The transfer pricing. Yeah. Not to the same extent. Mm. You can do a little bit today, but not at all as much as you could. And, and even now they're coming after all the tech companies, you know. And they are going after, as you know, Apple. Uh, they are going after Starbucks. Starbucks. Yeah. Uh, here in Europe, we are going after Luxembourg, which is one <laughs> of the tax havens. And Dublin. <laughs> and Dublin, of course. Yeah. Holland, to some extent. So this means that basically the margin on international operation has international operations have been falling now for a number of years, and this basically means that the cost for running these internationally complex organizations and bureaucracies are too high. Hmm. You basically have to roll it up. So is this the multi-urban companies that you were talking about? Probably we will see the rise of multi-urban companies. What does that mean? Basically means companies that serve urban areas, most probably in a, in, in a region where there are some cultural similarities, or where these companies cut out small segments of Vienna, Moscow, Stockholm and New York where you basically find the same kind of people. Right. So you are serving your home market primarily. Right. You are not internationalized at all. So the, the global international network of hipsters. Yes. You are serving them. But you don't break out of that segment because the moment you break out of that segment you have to add administration, marketing. Yes. And the so geography is not so as important as a, a kind of a customer psychographics. Yes, cultural distance or whatever you should call it, or psychological distance. So I think we'll see a little bit of an implosion here, um, which means that the community of multinational companies that we thought five years ago would rule the world because they will be so big and they will control world trade, well, it doesn't seem to be the case really. But you're still an optimist. I'm still an optimist. We are moving in the right direction in every sense except climate change. But in all other numbers uh, that we can measure, child mortality, number of poor people in the world, um, war, number of people killed in wars, number of democracies on this planet, we are moving in the right direction no matter what Mr. Trump says. <laughs> well, it was wonderful seeing you again. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you. You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash betweenworlds.